This is Amstigator, a podcast founded on purpose, but focused on the path to get there. Experience is the best teacher, right? And in this season of Amstigator, we're going all in on female perspective of women and wisdom as we answer one specific question. What's the lesson here? Welcome back to Amstigator. I'm so glad you pressed play because this is another just really incredible conversation. It'll inspire you. It'll encourage you. And it is a lesson we all need to hear, no matter where we are in our lives, um, no matter what choices we've made, and probably most importantly, no matter what regrets we have. But the powerful part of this lesson, I would say, is the delivery system. It's the woman who's teaching it. Dr. Melanie Hicks is an expert in workplace and nonprofit strategy and structure. She works with organizations to make sure how they're operating lines up with their vision. Now, she's been a decade working in state politics. She's gone in and out of entrepreneurship as she consults with organizations all over the world. But at her heart, she's an adventurer. She's visited 41 countries. She's done service work specifically in six of them. Every year, she picks one organization to do free work for to help their nonprofit have an even greater impact. And this year, it's with a group in Sierra Leone. And at the end of this conversation, she does still try to hold back tears when she talks about this incredible work that they're doing, getting women out of the sex trade. But even with all of that, it doesn't actually give you the full picture as to why she's on Amstigator today, why I wanted her to be here. I asked her to come on because of a book she just recently released. It's called Incongruent. And it's a memoir that's so candid and so open and so honest. It had me saying, I know this woman. And in some chapters, I was even saying, I am this woman. The book captures her two failed marriages, the very public domestic abuse she dealt with from her second husband, the relationship she always wanted with her dad, her overcoming the regret of not having children and then losing the ability to have them. There's also a very difficult conversation in this episode about sexual assault. And I do want to warn you, if you've been a victim of rape or violence of any kind, you may find parts of this conversation pretty triggering. I know I've had an experience with abuse that I shared publicly for the first time in this episode. So it's an important one for me as well. So if you decide to keep listening at this point, please know Mel shares it all through the lens of healing. She weaves her international travels through all of it and then recalibrates you on this idea of risk versus reward. And instead, she makes it risk versus regret. My favorite quote from her is, no one can give you directions to places they've never been. And we talk about that in this episode. It's so powerful. So she shares what she did wrong in her 20s and wrong again in her 30s. And now she's correcting in her 40s. It's a book for any woman who feels isolated because maybe their life just looks different. So with that, this is Dr. Melanie Hicks with the lesson, Life is Incongruent. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. I appreciate I'm so, it. So excited to be here. When I was reading your book, I, I, I found so many points in it where not only was I like, okay, this is this other person, but sometimes I saw myself in it. And I, I know that was part of the goal. That's the part of the goal of any writer, right? Mm -hmm. So that the person who reads it connects with it. But why have this professional life that's so well put together and choose to put some really awful stories yeah. about your experience and your life? Why choose to put all of the hard into a book? You know, a couple of years ago, I decided that the only way to really look myself in the mirror is to be really authentic. And I had a lot of great mentors who who pushed me along the way from their own authenticity. And how that manifested itself in this book is that I, as I started to write, I wanted to write the, the sugar-coated versions. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the platitudes and the the stories of life lessons and, and beautiful travel that led me to these wonderful cultures. But the truth is, the life stories that really mattered are the ones that are dirty and gritty and that you grow from, that you fall and you scrape your knees and you get up. And that's where I had to be there. And it it wasn't, you know, necessarily easy. It wasn't, I, I there was a many, many chapters that I would write and then go, I shouldn't put this in. It actually <laughs> was kind of the opposite. I would write them wow. in the fantasy way and then go, this isn't it, Mel. I would look myself in the mirror and go, that's not really you know there was more. You know it was deeper. You know it was dirtier. Yeah, like, that's interesting because mm -hmm. that almost taps into the stories we tell ourselves. Like we tell ourselves maybe 
maybe it's not as bad. And then when we really start to like take off the makeup, right? right. Like, yeah. let's see what's really <laughs> under let's there. Let's see what's really under there. Yeah. And I found it to be interesting. I did not write the book in a linear fashion. So mm -hmm. it I wrote as the various stories came to me. And I definitely wrote the ones I saw a pattern emerge that was an interesting kind of self-reflection of myself of like the hardest boxes to unpack, the things I was most ashamed of, the things I was most kind of scared to say yeah. um, that I had spent so much time like putting extra bolt locks on in right, my memory, right, right? right? Those were the last chapters to write because it did. It, I had to grow through the easy stuff to really be able to say, all right, now this, now I can say this. I right? want to know which stories those were. So for sure, the chapter on sex was the very last chapter. And I I really, I give a lot of credit to a mentor of mine, John Dingler, who um, is incredibly raw and authentic person in general. And he would sit with me and he goes, it's only one more chapter, Mel. You're going to be done. One more chapter. And I was like, I can't. He's like, you have to. And he would really push me to, to keep diving in and keep saying, if this matters to you, he's like, your other option is to cut the whole thing. And I was like, I can't. I Man, can't do it, right? it would be incomplete without that chapter, right? right? right. So it, explain to everybody who hasn't read the book, what is that chapter about? So the chapter explores kind of, it, it, it well, it has a story in it about my um, sexual assault in D.C., which was really challenging to write. It took me six years to ever even mention that incident to anyone, ever. Um, and so to write about it in as much detail as I can kind of conjure up, trauma leaves you, mm -hmm. and I say this in the book, mm -hmm. with a lot of like mismatching scenes that you that don't necessarily follow a pattern um but that was that piece of it but that's not the whole chapter the the chapter's really broader and it and it's really about how do we claim sexuality for us what does that look like you know what do, what do I believe I grew up in a very kind of um bubble of Christianity and what what sex and marriage and monogamy look like within those constructs and like do I own that still is that is that my story? Is that my story, right? Is that yeah. my true belief system or am I just carrying that around because I was taught that as a child? And so really diving in and explaining, I read so many people's books, um, great, great works that dove in specifically in a whole book to do that. And I read so many of them to like try to figure out where do I fall on the spectrum? And the truth yeah. is I just, I just think people should love their sexuality for what it is. So whatever is your version of that, as long as it's healthy, as long as you're not uh, carrying trauma or doing it to fill a need in your life that you really should fill with with some self-analysis and maybe some therapy and whatever mm -hmm. and not using it as a crutch it's a it's a beautiful thing and it can be it can be monogamous in a relationship forever or it can be wild and free and and as long as you own it and as yeah. long as you're comfortable there and I I I had to, I had to get to that place where I could say this is what this is what I believe about sexuality. And by the way, sexual trauma is not going to steal that from me. I'm yeah. not going to allow it to steal from me. That's what I was going to ask you: is how did it impact what would otherwise be healthy, loving relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think for a long time there was a fear factor. So I was divorced young and then single for ten years. And during that time, you know, I dated, I did some great guys, I had run-ins with some not great guys, and this happened during that period of time. And it, it did put me a step back, right? It put me more isolated. I'm already kind of an independent and I can, so much to my detriment, sometimes put put walls around myself to say I can do everything by myself. I don't need anyone. And that made it one more step. I'm single. I don't need a relationship if men are going to treat me like that or if I – there was a lot of shame around it. Like I was oh, drinking, course. right? So part of the story is I was drinking. I joined them in drinks that they invited me to, two men. And I um, – so I – Part of the reason I couldn't come to terms with it was because I you thought it was your fault. I felt yes, I felt all that shame and guilt that we carry um, that often a lot of victims carry right. around. Like this was my fault, right? And and quite honestly, you know, the the media and and other even the court system sometimes perpetuates that yeah. in victims, right? Because they don't want to believe if you had any. You know, if you check one box of not doing the perfect right uh, thing, yeah, yeah. victim then, shaming, it's right, your fault. Absolutely. So, so I had to get past that too, and and none of that was easy, and none of that was short or quick, or you know. And actually, writing it helped. Quite honestly, mm -hmm. I was in the process of writing the chapter the very first time I actually said it out loud mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. to wow. an unexpected group of women wow. <laughs> who were very, they were just wide eyed, and I, I, 
have since apologized for throwing that in there. They're very supportive. They were wonderful, but they weren't prepared for that statement in the middle of dinner. Well, that's actually a side comment (laughs) that I would like to just explore with you briefly before Uh we get back into the book. I find that I will throw stuff out to people just to see if anyone's listening or to see if anyone's awake. Really, it's like, are you awake? Mm -hmm. You know, are you here enough to hear what I'm saying or hear my cry for help? Yeah. Or be honest enough with yourself to know like, God, how many women in this country have been sexually assaulted? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So many so women. Many. Isn't it like one in four or, or one in five? There's mm-hmm. so many women. So many. And why aren't we talking about that? Right? right? And so like if you say that to a group of women, all of us know someone who's been sexually assaulted mm-hmm. if we ourselves have not been. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> it's just it's just wild that that people would be I don't know. Maybe it's because it's the world I live in. Like, I expect crazy. I expect it because I only see the best of humanity and the worst of humanity. Right. So when Absolutely. I when people aren't prepared for something, I'm like, you're not my people. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you're right. not my people. That's, That's right. just what it is. That's right. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. It even surprised me, though, the way sometimes that uh, particularly that incident. And I, I, I did think back to this has probably happened to me a few times where something will come out of my mouth and I'm like, oh, Right. Like I didn't even expect it to come out quite in that in that yeah. way. And that's what happened there. They asked me how the book was going, and I said, I'm stuck on this one chapter. And they said, what is it? And I just went, here it well, is. Here it is. Oh, and, wow. And they were just like, uh, Why have you never told what? us? Or were right. they just like, and I can't believe it? And one friend particularly, she was, at the t- she was kind of the host of this party, dinner party. And there was about six of us. And, and she's been my friend for 22 years. And she's like, how did you not tell me? Oh, wow. And, and she wasn't hurt. She was just more like shocked. Um, yeah you know, how you knew I would have supported you. And I said, I know I wasn't ready. Wow. I wasn't ready. Well, because when you talk about it, then you have to relive it. Mm -hmm. And then also when you talk about it, it's real. Mm -hmm. But you writing about it brings up something that I believe just so wholeheartedly is that stories can heal. Stories heal. And then the more you talk about it, the conversation can heal too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk about the chapter on domestic violence. Um, You had, gosh, you, you, you made some not great choices. In your 20s, which I, again, thank you for being honest (laughs) about this. Like you married one guy young, bad choice. You married a second guy still young. Very young. Yeah, still young, both in your 20s. And I think the thing, because I, um, I'm a victim of domestic violence. Uh, I was someone I was dating when I was 19. And so when I hit that chapter, I was like, God, it just threw me back Mm -hmm. because I was like, wow, wow wow, this happens and people see it happen. Mm-hmm. And do people react or not? I mean, that that was my personal story is that someone saw it happen and called the police and I, I thought I was going to die. Yeah. And I didn't die right. because someone saw it happen and called the police. Yeah. And so when I read, uh, just for listeners, in her book, she talks about being hit in public and y- you essentially blacked out, right? Mm-hmm. Because you hit your head. Mm-hmm. And when you woke up, was it the... Uh, EMTs like helping you or was it a restaurant employee? It was just restaurant employees because I wasn't out for long enough yet. They had called, but they, the EMTs weren't even there yet. So it was just chaos. It was other patrons of the restaurant. It was the restaurant employees. It was, there was just like a, just a hornet's nest of people kind of crowded around. Um, And it was very surreal for me because even all the things that had happened in private, um, in a sense, had been, and maybe just compartmentalized by me, but they had been definitely a buildup. All the all the red flags were there, but nothing at, quite as like shocking as um, well. Everyone know. else knew then, right? Because it was your it, in the similar way that mm-hmm. the sex chapter in the similar way. It had mm-hmm. been your secret, right? It had been mine to and. and only those close to me, and as people would see, I would push them away. Yeah. The classic, like, circle the wagons, which is, right. uh, you know, so after um, after the court case, we went to, I got a pamphlet for a domestic violence shelter. Um, and I was really reluctant because I still didn't see myself as that kind of victim. Like, I wasn't showing up at the hospital with a black eye. I wasn't this, that, or I was educated and professional and right, all these things. Right, so you, right. uh, you, all these stereotypes that... I didn't even realize, but I held around what domestic violence victims look like, who they are as people. Um, And so I took this pamphlet and I was like, yes, yes, thanks, whatever. And then as I did my own healing, I was like, I have to go. I have to at least show up there for these. They had these groups where 
Um, when you're not in crisis, it's just meant to be a, a support group. And I showed up at one of them, and sure enough, they gave out textbooks about domestic violence. And I was like, oh my gosh, like his behavior was such a cycle. It was actually in a textbook. Yeah, it like, was a textbook this cycle. Is, there is so much of this, and it's so common that I am not, not only am I not alone, but like, there's been a time enough for people to write about it in textbooks. And that was <laughs> that was really like eye-opening. I was like, oh, yeah. this is actually textbook. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there was, there was a lot of growth and healing around um, understanding that you're not alone. And that's another reason why I talk about it. And uh in the book because I feel like it, it was an important piece of my story and about my story about how I ended up not ever a, even attempting in a real way to have children. But I also, which which changed a lot of the trajectory of my life, right? A lot of what I'm able to do and not do, where I am in life. But also, you know, just ma- helping people to see, helping other women to see that it it can happen to anyone. And you don't have to fit any stereotype to feel like you want support and that you want help and to get out. Yeah. I what, Something you just described is a realization that I had, too, on that very specific night that I'm talking about. Um, I remember walking through a parking lot uh, of the apartment building, and I was, I was pulling my suitcase behind me. Mm-hmm. We were in Miami. And, um, and it happened, yeah, it happened in his apartment. He lived in, it doesn't matter. Anyway. Mm-hmm. I was carrying a Fendi bag Mm -hmm. as I was walking through the apartment as the police pulled up. And I remember thinking, this doesn't happen to young, educated, middle-class women. This doesn't happen. Right. Right? That doesn't happen. And then I I just remember, like, in the same way that you're saying of having these weird trauma memories pieced together, I have the same thing. Mm -hmm. I remember the officer asking me, do you want to press charges? And I was like, no. And I never talked to him again. I never talked to him again, mm. ever. Because the police being there was the point that someone else That was your wake-up call. Someone else knew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just, I find not just that story, but so many stories in your book. It's like we we all carry stories like this. And we don't talk about them. We don't tell anybody about them. We just sort of carry them until they clog us up to the point that we can't function. So at what point did you say these have to be shared? I have to get them out. That's an interesting question. And I wish I had a better answer. So when I wrote my first book at 10 years old, just in colored pencil, it's framed, (laughs) it's framed on my shelf. um, I, there was a piece of my soul that always knew. I wasn't in touch with that realization for a very long time, but something told me because I will tell you that I kept every, I journaled every single day. I kept, well, almost every day. I kept every journal. I scanned them and, and keep them in a file on the computer. I'm not a paper person, but, um, but I kept every text message, every single one. I, te- I kept every email, every text message, every communication of not just that situation, not just my, my ex-husband, but of just important people in my life. Something would tell me this person is going to be important at some point in my life. And I would, I would save copy and paste into the file it went. And so I sat down. I talk about this a little bit in the in well, I mentioned it briefly in the back of the book. I sat down in Taos, New Mexico, in a refurbished airstream named Rosie. She was a former circus trailer, and <laughs> I just sat for a week. You could not, you could get barely any signal. It was pretty much off the grid, and I just I took out all of it. I took out all of those. I you know I went through all the digital files of text messages and letters and emails and journal entries. And I read them all, and wow. I just dove in and and said, you know. Let's let's figure out what of this is worthy of sharing, mm-hmm. and something. So something in my soul always knew I would share it somehow. I I don't know um, what clicked necessarily to make me want to do that, but I knew that I was going to be a writer, and I knew I had to write this book first before I can embark on any mm-hmm. other creative. It almost feels like you had to clean some stuff out first, absolutely, before you could allow yourself to be a vessel. Right. I I believe that you know we're. I always think about it like, um, and I talk about this in the yoga chapter a little bit about, I had this vision in Shavasana about this pipe and it was full of all this yellow gunk. And over time I would chip away at it until the water would flow and it would flow clean. And I feel like that was also my writing journey. I had all of these stories, all of this stuff, and it was clogging up my ability to be creative in any other way. And I had to get them out and then I had to actually organize them in a way that made sense for other people. But um, I had some really great um, feedback from, from other authors and agents in the early stages of the book to figure out how to organize the stories. Mm-hmm. The stories mm-hmm. were 
were there and they were all mine and they were always from day one sending anyone any of the stories very grateful because they were all super positive even if it was hard critiques on how to do it or what to yeah, do the story they were like don't yeah. give up on this this story yeah. matters these stories matter but they've got to be in a different you yeah. know way yeah so i i do love your yoga journey because i i mean i'm i'm a yogi and mm -hmm. so yoga and meditation and all of that just is so important for me in my life and then the healing that i've done just in my own journey right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i'm i'm interested to think that you had to go through all those things that you went through to get you to the airstream in New Mexico <laughs> where you were healed enough, whole enough to pull out those stories and look at them from a different, like you were a different person, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. It was a different person reading Absolutely. the writings of a young woman right. who, who you were no longer. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I, you, I don't believe that we can write usefully for others in the midst of the journey. Oh, we yeah. have to be to a point, which is why this book is 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 a point in time, right? It's it's kind of 20s to late 30s, maybe. There's only a few stories late 30s. It's really 20s and 30s, right? And it, and childhood, and I have some childhood. So, like, it's this is the point in time because I had to be through it enough to have worked through and processed the feelings around it to be able to look at it with a different lens and look at it as a from a real writer's lens and and from a almost like a journalistic perspective of of what happened what were the consequences what were the emotions i was feeling at the time and and separate myself from from that young girl yeah and that's difficult mm -hmm. it does it is a journey though it's a journey what do you think what do you think you were thinking in your 20s uh, i think i was just thinking about surviving yeah. right I think one of the most important lessons for me, um, and it it's going to hearken to love lessons, but that's not really what it is, is so many times and so many women, and me for sure included, was looking for my other half. I was chasing this idea that there was someone who would fill me, someone who would who would fulfill my life by being the other half. And then there was this moment where I realized I'm a whole person. I'm a whole person all by myself. And if I have to be by myself forever, so what? I'm capable and competent and life is good. And then if someone else, another whole person, wants to be in my life and we choose that together, whether that is a friendship or a husband or you know a relationship, whatever, then that's only better. But I'm still going to be a whole person the whole time. And I think so many women, we look for this like other half to fill it. And we fill that gap of it. If we can't find it in a person, we fill it with drugs or alcohol or well, sex yeah, or totally. or whatever. Workaholism. Workaholism, yes. Or over you know, overachievement or, you know, hobbies that might or might not be good. And hobbies are wonderful. Don't get me wrong. I, I love my own hobbies. But but if it's filling a if we're trying to fill a gap, it's right. always going to show up empty, right? Until we decide, like, I'm a whole spherical person. Mm -hmm. And and that's really where I had to get to. I had to be – I had to really come to grips. I remember I was literally in child's pose on the floor in my condo, on my favorite rug in my condo. And um, and I just said, okay, like, I give it up. Like, I'm a whole person. And if this is it, this is my path, me alone as a whole person, I'm going to give everything I can to other people in the most loving way I can. And mm. I think that words are a way for me to do that. I, I believed that for a long time. I wasn't sure how that would manifest, but I was like words, articulation, amplification of other people's stories and the good that other people are doing. That's me. That's what I'm going to do. How old were you? I was, it was right before my 40th birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Just before my 40th birthday. And it was this, it was a really tangible, powerful shift in the way I viewed the world and it had been coming like there had been pieces of that sure coming but this moment where I said all right I'm, I'm all in if that means me all alone forever just traveling the world trying to find people who are doing great work and amplify their work or write about it or wherever I'm supposed to be tell me where I'm supposed to be I'm in that sounds in. like surrender yeah, it was how difficult was it for you to get to surrender very very especially I you know I think I'm a very type A, ambitious woman who likes to be in control. Part of being independent, there's this like very delicate balance, right, between being super independent and being and trying to control everything, right? And so 
if you feel like I've got this, I have this, I can do this all by myself, right? There's a level of of control that comes along with that because you feel like you have to make sure all the spinning plates, all the things that all the irons in the fire, whatever, that you've got a handle on all of it. And, and you learn not to ask for help as much as you should. And you learn to, to teach yourself how to do something rather than, you know, whatever. And surrender is the opposite of that. Surrender is making space for I am open to the possibilities. And it's a little bit about trusting yourself, trusting God or the universe, whatever you believe, to say you have equipped me and I have equ- you have equipped me with the, the ability to, uh, to fill my toolkit with all of these skills. And I don't necessarily know how they all play together, but I trust that, that there's a way. I trust there's a path and I'm open. And I call it, op- I've learned to call it open palms just recently. I call it that. Open palms. So I, 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 I call I, it, I'm open palmed. Yeah, open yeah. palms. Hashtag open palms. I, I just say, you know, I know this toolkit is robust. I know I've spent years building it and it's, and it comes out of trauma and it comes out of joy and it comes out of, you know, experience and blessings and all kind of things. And it's not going anywhere because you can't take it away from me. So that's, I love it. Yeah. I, there's a quote I love from um, uh, a meditation teacher I just love. And he says, allow that part of you that knows the way to take the lead. Uh, love that. There is that's a part wonderful. in all of us. Yep. I, went, I just talked to a psychic yesterday mm-hmm. and she said to me, we're all psychic. Everyone's psychic. Some of us just listen better than others. Uh. And I was like, yes. Yeah. There's actually a yes. line in the book and I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like it was written by someone else, even though I wrote it, which is, you know, my gut is never wrong, but I'm, um, and or my gut has never failed me. Only I have failed it. Yeah. And that is a hundred percent true in my life. Like I, every single moment, if I'm in tuned and listening to myself, I already know the answer, yeah. but I'm great at ignoring it. I'm well, great at ignoring and it. That's what I feel like life lessons, that's what life lessons are, right? Uh, so often we feel the right answer mm-hmm. and we don't, we don't listen, but we get older. And when we start making small choices to listen mm-hmm. and another maybe small choice and you go, oh, crisis averted because I listened to what I knew. Right. And then those things build. Transformation happens through micro movements. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Not from one giant choice. No, only it's only a giant choice when you look backwards. It's yeah. never a giant choice out the out the the windshield. Only out the rear view. I love this quote that you have in your book. It's one of my favorite. You said, "No one can give you directions to places they've never been." Yeah. How did you write that, and why? Uh, so I'm, I, I don't remember. And quite honestly, I think that someone said it to me once, and I wish. I could give them credit, but there's no way for me to do that. But it's stuck in my psyche for two decades that, you know, part of the burdens that we carry in life is all of these expectations, right? Expectations about, you know, from our family, from society, from our own decisions as young people, from, you know, this is what I'm going to be when I grow up, or this is how much money I'm supposed to make, or this is the path I'm supposed to be on, or this is what my parents expect, or this is what my church says I should do. And our lives are ours. And if we, um, I use the the phrase princess and the pea a lot because there is uh, the fairy tale of princess and the pea, right? You can put a million mattresses, but if you don't take the little rock, which they call pea in this English fairy tale, if you don't take the rock out from under the mattress, you're always going to be uncomfortable. So it doesn't matter how many more degrees I got, how many more places I went to until I got to who I really was and, and figuring out I have to, I have to walk my own path and I have to be really solidly comfortable with all of the th- expectations that other people have may not fit me. Yeah. And so some of them, some of them I'll accept and I'll take on and that's a great scarf from you and a bow tie from you or whatever. <laughs> but, but others of them, I'm just going to, that's an ill-fitting coat and I'm not taking it with me mm-hmm. and I can't, I can't carry that. And so, yeah, we can only, we can only know our own path. We can't, we can't take all the directions from other people. And it doesn't just appear. That's the other thing, too, Mm -hmm. I feel like, with our own path. It does require excavation. Absolutely. But I believe it's a journey of remembrance. I believe there are things we've known that we just have to find our way back to. Yeah. Yeah, I talk about it. So I have a – in my professional workshops, I do this thing called the 3E method of change. And it's both – I do it with organizations but also with individuals. And the first E is excavate your attic because the first step in any – change should be to dig out those boxes that we hide in our attic, whether it's an organizational attic of like old norms or old bosses or whatever, mm-hmm. or if it's a personal addict of, of 
the things that the traumas and the joys and the the former um you know scenarios that have built who you are and until you really open up those boxes blow off the dust understand them and then you can move forward you don't have to relive them you don't have to you know you just have to recognize that they're there understand them and then use them to to make sure you don't make the same mistakes twice right, right. i mean that's right. that's the main thing let's talk about your work with nonprofits and how you got into it because you did a lot with politics you were in state politics mm-hmm. for many many years mm-hmm. and and then got into nonprofit. It, what what drives you to work in that space? First of all, I I do believe that at some point I I, I questioned myself a lot about this. Why do why nonprofits? Why me? And it and I never really was driven to be in kind of one singular nonprofit. And so I I always kind of questioned my myself in the space. And what I figured out is this is this mantra I have, which is I believe that my greatest impact is helping other people amplify what they do. And so. Over the years, I, I got into nonprofits very organically. My father sat on a board of a nonprofit, and he asked me to go down and and speak to their group at a national or a statewide conference. I it was four hours away. I drove down. I thought it was going to be twenty people in a room. It was fifteen hundred. Oh, and then so suddenly I was training wow. this giant group, you know, um, and it was wonderful. And from there, I made contacts, and I did a lot of volunteer work and. And I would show up at events and then I would secretly pull their executive director aside and be like, you know, next time you could do this. Yeah. And it was probably um, <laughs> pretty crazy to do that at some of the young age. But some of the young ages are that I did it with older executive directors, um, not as seasoned probably as I should have been to, to say some things. But the truth is I had a talent for for strategy and structure. That's my that's my wheelhouse. I can I can see things like a puzzle. I understand how to put them together. And then I'm an activator, right? And if you know anything about strength finders, I'm an activator. And so structure, right? Um, I see the structure and I can I can make a strategy to get there, a road a roadmap to get there. And that's been a talent forever. And so it just it manifests itself as I want to amplify the work that other people are doing. Like if I see that they're doing great work, but it can be done better. Like I want to help them do that better. Or if it's a great story and nobody's paying attention to it, I want I want people to pay attention to this, right? You're a storyteller yourself, so I know that you get that. Like when you see something that just more people should know about, yeah. that's that's. Um, and I'm also, you know, I'm very hands on. It's why I do why I've had the privilege to go on some of the service trips that I've been on in my life, which is normally something tied to a nonprofit where I might have been doing work at an executive level with their board or, or with their staff or something. But I'm like, I, I need to feel the work. Yeah. I need to feel it with I my hands. I can't help until I really feel this. I've got yeah. to be in it. I've got to be in it kind of neck deep in the work. And then I come back with different perspectives and a different level of empathy. And you can help differently too. Mm-hmm. And you can guide Absolutely. from a much more educated place because you really feel the work that they do. Absolutely. And that, how they're helping people. Absolutely. And I, I have to be connected to it in that way as well, right? There's a, there's a human connection that is very much a piece of really caring about something, right? Yeah. And so, I find it just so interesting that that you were living these parallel paths at the same time. All of this personal, your personal life was just—I mean, God, again, like it's just <laughs> wild. It's just wild. All the things that you were going through, and then at the same time, you you did have this professional side that has continued to be very successful. Which, as an aside, I've seen this happen so many times with my friends. Truly, <laughs> where personally things are falling apart, but professionally things are incredible. And so I do feel like the universe at least gives us something to hang on to, right? So we (laughs) don't drown. So there's something. Um, But to see you you give so much and to love so much and to care so much about the work that people are doing, um, you know, in this nonprofit space, Mm -hmm. in in a space where people are just taking care of others, Mm -hmm. trying to make their life better, and then, in a way, you were having really struggling to do that for yourself. Mm-hmm. You almost needed your own did, Mel Hicks to do it I for did. you. Someone I needed to, to come be my for own you. coach, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's an interesting thing. Um, there's a duality to life for sure, and I often think, you know, thank goodness uh, my career didn't also fall apart at the time when my life was falling apart because I had one, you know, one compartmentalization that still brought me joy and brought me confidence and and fed my soul while the other was sort of tearing it down and mm-hmm. and, and you know and it was shaping it you out. it was shaping, shaping you. you yeah yeah break I I um caught a, a I'm gonna pronounce this wrong but a kintsuki bowl yeah kintsuki, yeah, kintsuki no you're, bowl, right. Right? you're right yeah where you know all the pieces you have to break it first before it can be welded back and it's even more beautiful but yeah because you weld it back with, it's a Japanese right. pottery mm-hmm. uh practice and they they put gold 
to seal the cracks. And so yeah. what, what you actually create is this beautiful work of art that's mm -hmm. more valuable and more beautiful because now it's uh, joinered with gold. Right. And it's, it's beautiful. more unique. Mm -hmm. too. And, right. that's, and that's all of us. That's all of us, right? Like we all have our, our own unique versions. It's just how do we, how do we get those out into the world? How do we, how do we come to recognize it in ourselves? You know, one of the hardest things I have when I run into women particularly that are just amazing and yet they don't see it. Mm. If they don't see it the way that we all see it and, you know, we all meaning whoever's around them, and that's that's probably the hardest thing. Is I don't know how to. I haven't figured out how to crack the code on on helping them look in the mirror. Right. Mm. I um I did a speakers conference once where I said you only need two things in the world. Right. A mirror and a flashlight. A flashlight to see the way, and a mirror to reflect back that you already knew mm. that you're already all the things. Yeah. And the mirror piece of that is what I want to share with other people sometimes. And that's that's the hard piece when you see someone. But everybody has their own journey, and they've got to they've got to go through it at their own time. And you right. just can stand and support them at whatever stage they're in. Yeah, I love that. I love that because everyone does have their own journey. This is something else you said in your book that I loved. You said life can never grow roots when the soil is a lie, yeah. and I I feel like I feel like that does have a connection here because when when the foundation is completely wrong, right? What you're growing from that is never going to be the reflection that you want. And so even when someone looks at their reflection and they can't see themselves clearly, you only see them, but you don't see their roots. You Absolutely. don't know what's down there. Absolutely. You know, and it goes back to the very first thing we talked about, which is the, as it relates to like, to why tell these stories, right? The, the roots, the, the depth through which these experiences happen and the depth through which that's the dirty part, right? Roots live in the soil. They're dirty. It's they're grungy. Dark. They're not pretty. They're gnarly and, and weird, but that's where all the nutrients live, right? That's where all, that's where all of life springs from. Mm. And so wait, the darkness is also the nutrients. Yeah. Like. Yeah, oh my God, that's beautiful. And so we have to, I, I think we have to look at our roots and say, is, are we being true to who we really are? Are we, you know, it kind of, that's a, an interesting tie back to almost everything we've talked about, which is we have to be true to our own roots, meaning are they, you know, what do they really, mm. what do they really need from the soil? What are they really asking for? Are we yeah. giving it to them? Are we recognizing it for what it really is? I might want to be an aspen tree, but I might you know, most likely be a water oak. Like, let's be honest. And so <laughs> I know too much about trees. To, to, I love trees. Yeah, I love yeah. trees. Tree jokes. But, yeah, tree jokes. But yeah, I just, I think that that's, um, yeah, you can't, if you can't look yourself in the mirror and really be honest with yourself, then you're never going to be honest with anyone else. Yeah. And so. So much of your journey, I feel like some of your great epiphanies happened staring out the window of a uh, of a, an airplane, mm -hmm. staring at clouds or staring at the tiny, tiny things that you can see below. What is it about travel that ignited um, growth for you? You know, travel has been what I, what I consider my life companion, I think. My parents instilled travel in me as a really young child. I talk about some of the trips we took as a child, um, domestic trips. We had a big RV and my parents would take off the entire summer and we would go. It's amazing. Um, and we would take off in this RV and just drive around the country. Uh, and see every possible state park, national park, ball of yarn, anything we could see. <laughs> and and there was just a wanderlust that was lit at, from a very early age. And as I got older, what I realized about travel, especially to other countries, is it reminds you how small you are, but it also reminds you of the beauty of mm -hmm. the diversity of humanity. Mm -hmm. To go to another country and to immerse yourself in their culture and to really understand it. you know, And, and a lot of people, they do these very... Um, it's perfectly fine, but they do these very catered, um, customized vacations that are all boxed and perfect, and all the co creature comforts that they would get in a Western, you know, in America, in their hometown, yeah. are like just brought to another country. And that's just not how I do travel, right? So I want to be in it. I want to yeah. be. That's why I like to do service work there because you're just in it. You want to feel it. I want to feel it. I want to eat the food. I want to sleep in weird conditions. I want to have <laughs> no AC or no showers for multiple days or whatever weird it takes. Toilets, right? Like weird not, toilets. Not actually toilets. Or yeah, toilets. holes in the wall, holes, holes in the ground. In the ground right? right. I I just I want to, but I also want to look in the faces of the people of that country that live there every day, and I want to understand them, and I want to connect with them, and I want to gain their humanity to make 
my humanity better. Mm. And that that's what's powerful to me. And so I, it's like a drug I can't ever get away from because as soon as I come back from a trip, I do a whole series of mourning and then I'm ready for the next one. Like I can't wait. <laughs> the reintegration like the period next, really sucks. Right, huh? right. But, you know, it's interesting because I'm going to go back to your point for just a second. You know, you ask about this, this duality of life, right? And you asked me earlier, actually, um, before the show about two – you know, having these two pieces, right? Having this real life and then having this professional life. And if I was to to give a, you know, a premonition, this is the crux that I'm at. I am sitting at the precipice of trying to figure out how to merge. What's next, right? Or how to merge these two things. What is next? What is the next place I'm supposed to be? But what I do know is that it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be together. I am supposed to be doing combining this one, it's not supposed to detract from my professional life, this wanderlust, this need to connect with humanity around the world. It's meant to be the next chapter of my professional life. And yeah. I just, I don't know what that looks like yet. But that's the beautiful thing of living and creating yeah. something that's not been done. Yeah. I champion that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of that, I especially when people are at, like you're saying, like, I started to ask you that question. You're right, because I didn't know the answer, and I was hoping you would give me the answer. And you're like, I don't know the answer. <laughs> I don't know the answer. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I okay, like this. Yeah. I like open being palms, in here with you. Right? Open palms. Yeah. I'm, open palms. I'm, I'm ready. I know that there that it is it is if not touching, it's it's so close. It's very, very close yeah. at this point. There's it's so very close. And so we're gonna figure out that crossing point. I bet one morning you'll wake up and you'll go, This has been here all along. How did I, it's probably like the answer is probably one sentence. You know, it's probably so simple and you just haven't seen it. Well, I, I'm going to just call it. Maybe one day you'll be cleaning the kitchen or getting in the shower or doing something super mundane and you'll go, that's it. That's it. One sentence. How, do, how could I have never connected those things? And then it'll happen. I'm that. calling it. So I'm make sure you t- make sure I, you text me. When I will it definitely. I'm definitely. I'm going to. I'm going to send you pictures from because I. I'm such an activator that if I have that thought, I probably board a plane that afternoon and go. I've done it before. Wow. I booked a plane ticket to the 2017 Women's March at 2 a.m. in the morning with no hotel. Every hotel was booked. Wow. And I just said, I'll find somebody. I know enough people in D.C. Somebody will yeah. let me sleep on their couch. Yeah. It was two in the morning. I left at seven. Uh, and I was gone, and I was there, and wow. I was there because I was like, I cannot miss this. I must yeah. be in this energy. I've got to look at these other women who are so passionate about this that they're coming from all over the country to stand for something they really believe in, and I need to yeah. share that I need to energy. Feel that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Tell me the significance of Kathmandu for you. Ah, yeah, Nepal, Kathmandu, all, all of that. You know, I didn't realize. Um, a lot of the travel lessons, that the, the trek to Everest Space Camp is eight days up and six days down. So it's a lot of time. And it's, it's seven to eight hours of walking every day. And, you know, depending on your pace and how you're feeling that day and whether or not you slept or whether or not you ate because elevation, you don't right. eat very much, we would, we would break up. And there would be long stretches where I was completely by myself on this trek. And I, I can't get lost. It's a, you know, it's like a dirt path. But, but a long stretches where I'd be completely by myself. And so it, it was probably the first time in a very long time that I gave myself that much space to just think, to really take all of these life lessons that I had been, you know, building up in the pipe and yeah. and really think about them and really think about why they were important. And so, you know, places become special when we attach emotions and memories to them. So Nepal is a very special country altogether. It is, the people are kind and loving and amazing and unique. And the landscape is some of the most beautiful in the entire world. And the history of it and the intermixing of different religions and different cultures is incredibly inspiring. But it also was about my personal journey and spending that much time with myself in the quiet, in the, you know, and and doing something hard, right? Like even just, you know, trekking is is technically walking, right? But walking at those elevations for that long a period of time with a backpack on every day, you know. And you're basically going up. Oh, up, up the whole time. I mean, until you, until you don't, until you hit the top and then you come back down. But, you know, that, it, it became that special for all of those reasons, for all the reasons that it is beautiful and special all by itself. And for all the reasons that it was really a point in time where I spent a lot of time with myself. Mm-hmm. And that I think we all should do that, and we can't all, you know, jot off to Nepal for sixteen days and climb a mountain. But like, <laughs> but but the truth is, there's real value in getting quiet. Mm-hmm. If you do that ten minutes at a time, 
or if you can do it for 14 days, whatever it is, it is, there's real value in that. And it will always be special. You strike me as someone who has a hard time turning it off. <laughs> yes. And requires instances like what Catman do provided for you. Yes. Yes. So what practices do you have? So I try to do um, a, a morning meditation and gratitude session and a little bit of yoga and stretching. Um, and then I go to the gym every, we wake up at 4.30, I go to the gym at six. So between those, between those times, I try to do the other things. I journal every single day. That is what, that I will say, thank you to Julia Cameron, uh, morning pages is non-negotiable for me. So even if I sacrifice the meditation and the yoga, which is probably not good, the morning pages become that for me. So I write every day, sometimes just nonsense. Like it's just Whatever I'm feeling, ten times I write it because because it's just not like you're but, writing on a like, like I'm writing like on the <laughs> yes board. like the dunce board right <laughs> but but because it's the habit it's the habit of emptying my soul because inevitably I'll write the same sentence five times and then suddenly it will hit me that oh this wow. is this is how I'm feeling about something the reason I'm stuck at these five sentences this one sentence five excuse me five times is because I'm actually stuck on this what a great point. writing hack yeah yeah what a great I, that's actually a life hack. It's the more I think about it, yeah. like if there's a question that you can't answer, write it over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And let's see what comes through when it's, you write the question. That's right. Something will come through. Because yeah. that does feel like life lessons because how often do we – that's the whole basis of season three of this podcast mm -hmm. is that we learn lessons over and over and over again. Yeah. Just like the questions you write Just, over and over again that's right. yeah. until the moment we go, oh, crap, here it is again. Why have I not learned this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> Let me not right. ever learn this lesson again, right. please. Yes. Dear God, <laughs> I'm done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I very specifically remember days where I would write, I have nothing to write. I have nothing to write. I have nothing to write. Why don't I have anything to write? Well, maybe it's about what happened yesterday. What am I feeling right now? And then like like it it will just go, right? It will just oh, it will move into beautiful. whatever. Yeah. What I mean, I'm telling you, that's a life hack and I love it. That's so go. great. I appreciate why you named your book Incongruent. I appreciate that story. So please share it with everybody. Yeah. So I I actually the word incongruent came to me in a dream and it was one of those very odd dreams. So I remember a lot of my dreams, I will say. I'm a relatively light sleeper, I think, so I remember a lot of my dreams, they don't always make sense. And sometimes I write them down as my morning pages, but um but the word I have you ever seen the old Star Wars, right? And it, the words are sort of like going away from you. What was the opposite? The words were coming towards me and it was just this word over and over and over again. And I don't think I'd ever used that word in a sentence before. Wow. And I just thought, this is a weird word. And so I just wrote it down, let it go. And, and then I started to put the story together and I thought, my life doesn't look like I thought it was going to. My life doesn't look like I anticipated my life doesn't look like anybody else's. This path I'm on is very disjointed comparatively to all these expectations that I was holding around it. And I went back to the word and I said, that's what this means. That's mm -hmm. what this means. Incongruent. I'm just incongruent. And there was a time, there was a period where I thought, oh, I'm supposed to, I called like a whole, I did a whole mo movement of saying becoming congruent. Right, I'm gonna become congruent. I'm gonna mm. get Fit like the mold. As, yes, because and because the conceptualization I had of the word was like, oh, my life is disjointed. To your point, professional life, personal life, all of these things. I have these hobbies. I have these talents, and and I'm gonna bring it all together. And it's gonna be this like perfect life path, and it's gonna I'm gonna call that becoming congruent. And then I thought, that's not it. Yeah, that's it's not actually it. the opposite. It's the opposite. It is. I'm. My life is incongruent. It's just incongruent with what I thought with what other people think, with what other people expected, with, you know, with what other people's lives look like. And it's beautiful anyway. And it's my incongruent. And it's my imperfect. Right. And it took you a long time to get there. A long time. And don't you think since you embraced that, what, what's your life been like since that? Uh, a whirlwind of, <laughs> of, of the same enormity, but in a totally different sense, right? Yeah. Like there is a freedom in really seeing yourself. Good, bad, ugly, all of it, right? There's a freedom in saying... Okay, this is who I am, fully, completely. I'm the most energy we can possibly spend is hiding from ourselves. Like, there's there's no greater energy uh, or time suck than trying to deny pieces of mm. ourselves. And so, yeah, there was a freedom in that. And then just to say, okay, you know what? By proxy of that, I don't have to care that you, you know, I don't have to. 
I could, you know, there was a sadness about not being part of kind of the mom community, right? It's a big piece of a woman's life to be a mom and to share, to have a shared experience around raising a child or multiple children, right? And when you don't have that, you feel ostracized. I felt, and I know I've talked to other women, so I'll say this in a more generic way, but like there's a sense that we're not part of the club. The This enormous club that we were taught from tiny children that we were going to be a part of. Um, and so figuring out that like, okay, so what's my version of that, right? And and where do I bring the joy and give back to the world in a way that, you know, is replacing that in a sense? How do I build my legacy? I talk a lot about legacy building and building a legacy. If you read 90, at least, if not 99% of women's um, kind of acceptance speeches or thank yous or whatever, they always say my greatest accomplishment is my children or my family. And when you don't have that, mm. you, you have to think really intentionally about, what what fills that gap? Mm. What what do I want to say is my greatest you know my greatest legacy? What do I want to leave? And and to me that's where the service came in. That's where how do I really get serious about using my talents to help other people in little ways, in big ways, hopefully in even bigger ways in the future. But you know in whatever way was right there in front of me at that moment, do it. Do the thing. Say the yes. Help that person. Give the time. Give the money. Give the talents or resources or, you know, whatever, intellectual resources, whatever, um, because that's the way that I'm going to build my own legacy. Yeah. Well, I, I love that. I love that you talk so much, too, about the cages we all build for ourselves, but everybody's cage looks different. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and we hold the keys to those cages. <laughs> that's right. Right. <laughs> and I, I just love it because everyone, we, we have to stop judging each other and we have to stop judging ourselves, right? Yeah, because yeah. my life looks different than yours. Your Absolutely. life looks different than hers or hers or hers, you know, yeah. it's all different. Yeah. And so if we can approach people with love mm -hmm. and acceptance, and it should be the same love and acceptance we give to ourselves. But the truth is, oh. I think we're giving people what we give ourselves. That's the saddest part yeah. is if we're not, if we're not capable of giving ourselves love, that's what we're giving other people. And so we're wondering, like, why am I getting judged in this situation? Why is this person being harsh? Because that's what they're giving to themselves. And that's the saddest part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We we are definitely a mirror to our own soul. And so the way that we the energy we put out is exactly it is exactly what we're getting back and vice versa. Right. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, tell me. Tell me about your husband. Randy. Randy is. uh He's an amazing man. He is literally one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. Uh, he had, he's a, you know, an, a, a decorated retired Army Ranger. He saw all kind of devastation in the world over the course of over 1,200 days in combat. And yet he is the kindest, most gentle, most loving, non-judgmental, open-hearted person I've ever met. He inspires me every day. Um, for those reasons. I, I walked into the gym yesterday and a couple of the women that are in our class, they're like, your husband loves you so much. He will not stop talking about you in the book. <laughs> and I just thought, of course not, because that's the man he is. When I'm not there, I, you know, I was off traveling and, and he's there being my little PR, PR agent, right? Because wow. he's just genuinely um, proud and happy. And it says a lot. We, you know, as I process my own trauma, I think about other people's trauma. And certainly with any kind of um, military and, and combat situation, there is lots of oh, yeah. of trauma there. Right. And one of the most inspiring things is he just has this attitude of calm and happiness and laughter and joking. And he's like, I'm not going to be held back by that. Right. I'm not yeah. going to be held down by by past things. Well, there's got to be stuff he's had to heal and you have mm -hmm. to you have to fight for that. That's the other thing. I think, too, we all get to this point in our lives where it's like we look at the 20s and 30s and we go, is this what the rest of my life is going to be? And and that's the source of like a midlife crisis. Right. <laughs> I mean, we can call it air yeah. quotes midlife crisis. I don't think it's a crisis. I think it's maybe it's the midlife mirror. Yeah. Oh, and we have this like course that. correction where we go this is not who I am or this mm -hmm. is not who I want to be mm -hmm. or this is who they wanted me to be. This is not who I'm going to be. Or in his case, my circumstance would dictate that I would be this person. I'm not that person. I don't want to be that person. I right. want to be someone else. And so you have a whole person mm -hmm. coming together with another whole person yeah. Yeah. and you guys are having an adult 
loving whole relationship. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was a big piece of our connection, right? Is I had come to the place where I was a whole person. And, you know, not to circle back completely, but but part of also what happens with people, even as they um, begin to come into their own, women begin to come into their own spherical, we still sometimes allow people who are not whole people to draw us in, right? So, totally. so it's their, them looking for another half, and that's still not a good fit, right? Like we might have come to our full circle, but if they haven't, then it's still not the best match. And Randy and I have both been divorced for 10 years when we met. We were both perfectly happy, independent people who were well-traveled, and we had our own hobbies, and we liked to do outdoor stuff, and, and we were both runners, and, and just all of these things that lined up, but also we had been doing them by ourselves for a long time, yeah. and we were fine with that. And so there was this very interesting uh, first date conversation where I told him my two rules, and, and he kind of- Which are? Which are, um, I will never share money. Um, there's a there's a whole lot of financial. Um, there's a piece of domestic violence that's about financial abuse, mm-hmm. and that was was big for me. And so once I reconciled that, I said, I, that "This I is never, mine. This is mine. I will yeah. never share money, um, and I'll never ask permission. Mm. Like if you if you're going to be with me, I will always be respectful and courteous, whatever. But I'm not I'm not asking you permission to live the life that I'm supposed to live. Mm. And it's amazing. He he was all in. It was, like, the, it was probably the weirdest first date conversation ever, but but he was like, that sounds great. And he has his own reasons for why that was extra special for him. But but I um it played out, honestly, fairly recently, as I'm going through this trying to figure out, you know, what are what are the next steps? Where am I going? What's how am I gonna merge these things? He looked at me at dinner one day and said, you know, if we sell the house, your half of the money could help you travel the world for a year. He's like, I'll oh. do it. I was like, uh, what? What? Like, <laughs> I, I write about this in the book. I'm like, wait, what? Like, yeah, I, yeah. we, I have. And at the time, I was running my own business. I was like, I have a business. We have two dogs. Like, this is our house. Like, whatever. And he's like, I can't be the person who holds you back from who you're supposed to be. Mm. And I was like, there Go live is in an ashram. Live that life for me. Yeah. I, I feel like deeply an ashram is calling to me. <laughs> uh, I, I spent two nights in an ashram, and I think I'm good. But <laughs> I, I, I'll be in a. I'll be in the in the. Uh, the camps, the camps in Sierra Leone instead, but <laughs> but yeah, there, you know, there's no greater love than just accepting someone for who they are, even if it's wild and crazy, and you know, I'm his wild child that is, on any given day, he never bats an eye, which is what I will say. I I got off a Zoom call where I'd agreed to go to Sierra Leone, like sight unseen, basically. I mean, sight unseen is a funny word, but like. I had agreed to go to Sierra Leone just on this one Zoom conversation. And I'm like, hey, he gets home from work. And I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm going to go to Africa for two weeks and work with domestic violence and sex traffickers. And he was like, cool, cool. When? (laughs) Do we need dog care? Like, that's his only only reaction. Because he just knows. He knows me. He knew who he married. He knew who I was right from the start. And he accepted it. And he didn't accept it because he thought he could change me later. Right? It was a genuine, yep. That's that's cool. what I married. <laughs> yeah, yep. Here you are. Here I am. And and let's point out too. I, I love that you do this. That you give pro bono work to one nonprofit a year. Right. Mm-hmm. Tell mm-hmm. me more about that and the choice to do that. Yeah. So I, you know, it was a. I have a very intentional uh, need to give kind of what I call twenty five percent of myself to other people, and that's that's income. A lot of it comes in actual money and donations here and there. I give twenty five percent of my my income, but I also have. I know I have talents, and I have talents that exceed income, quite honestly, right? And in the sense of what I can give, um, and, well, and so, the impact that makes long term for the right, group, right? right? Right. And so I found myself a few years ago doing a lot of mentoring, and I was mentoring kind of across spectrums. And I never felt like it was maybe seven or eight different organizations, and I never felt like I was giving it my all because I was so scattered, and I also was, you know, working full time, and I was teaching at the university, and I had. Uh, you know, and I was mentoring all these, and I was on boards and doing volunteer work and all these things. And so, at some point, I said, "I'm going to dive in, and I want to really help." Mm-hmm. And so, I'm going to I'm going to decide what is one nonprofit, and I, I still do a little mentoring here and there, but like short, like a one hour here or there. But I wanted to, if I'm going to do this, let me really dedicate myself for a year to really helping turn around an organization that both needs it but also wants it. Right? I've mm-hmm. I have been. Um, you know, there was stumbling blocks in that regard. I tried to dive into an organization a couple of years ago who said I could see lots of low-hanging fruit for how I could help them. They said they wanted the help. But as soon as 
I started to actually give them the hard feedback, it became kind of Heisman. Yeah, and they like, weren't never ready to receive it. They weren't ready to receive it. And I had to be okay with that. I had to just be like, okay, here, when if you ever decide you're ready, you let me know. But until then, I'll, I'll just be over here on the sidelines. Call me if you need me. But uh, those who are really open and who really appreciate the help and who really want the help, it's, it is meaningful for me to say I'll, to, to focus, to focus on them and not be scattered between giving advice to 10 different things, but to really say, you've got my attention for one year, as much as I can give to you. Let's, let's amplify everything you're doing. Let's fix the kinks in the chain. Let's do these things and get you running because I want to look back in five years and go, they grew yeah. and I helped them and, do that. And look how many lives they've impacted because I was able to help them. Right. Right. Like right. you're kind of taking the shackles off in a way, right? Because mm-hmm. you're cleaning things up in, in a beautiful way that allows them to help more people, mm-hmm. right? That's so tell goal. me more about Sierra Leone. Oh, gosh, if I can do this without crying. Um, Sierra Leone was was an absolutely beautiful experience. So I, I went to Sierra Leone with an organization called Unsilenced Voices, um, a very heartfelt organization started by a domestic violence survivor who had some, some previous ties to Sierra Leone through a, a different nonprofit that she had worked with. So she started her own nonprofit. And one of the things that was so impactful for me is that the organization is not fully formed. It's in a stage in life in a Western sense, the, the United States portion of it, that is still in a little bit of, of beautiful chaos and growth and trying to, to figure out who they are in the world. Um, so I was, I was somewhat skeptical about how the trip was going to go in terms of, you know, were they really doing as much impact as, as I had hoped or as, as even as, as they hoped that they could do? Is it really structured enough? And I got down there, and the in-country staff were so amazing. Mm. They were so passionate. And we, we met with the girls who are already in school. So Sierra Leone doesn't have um, free schooling uh, throughout, so – there's a there's a few paths, but but one most of the time you need to pay to have them in vocational school. There's not a lot of jobs for women, so creating your own business, uh, a clothing business or a food processing business or something of that nature is the most viable option for them to keep them off the streets and to keep them from becoming sex workers if they don't have a family structure. Um, and that was true even for uh, girls who go to university. If they go back to wow. some of the smaller towns, there's just not a lot of jobs available. And so I, so we met with the, all these different – so we met with students who were in these vocational schools who were changing their lives, former sex workers, as young as 14. Oh, my word. Um, then we met with this really powerful advocacy group. They, they're self um, – they're called the Senate of Women. They are self-organized. They meet weekly. They have a savings box. The other thing is the bank system is not reliable, so they have their own savings box and their own microloans for starting businesses that they've gathered themselves. They have – pink polo shirts. They dance. There's a lot of dancing in Sierra Leone. It's like how they celebrate you. It's how they welcome you. Oh. It's how they love on you. It's how they, they have joy with each other. Oh, I love so that. they start their meetings with a dance and then they, they get into, they have a, a, in a typed up agenda. Like they're a very organized women's group um, looking to change policy, looking to, to change the world, looking to change their own country, basically one, one village at a time. And then we were, you know, in the brothels like talking to women who are, have not yet left the sex trade, talking to them about how we can help them to building trust with, to say, I can leave. I mean, you, we can help you. We're not going to bring you out of this and, and, abandon then, and you. then abandon you, yeah. right? We're going to walk you all the way through. We're going to get you all the way through school. We're going to put you in three years of school and you're going to walk out with resources and we're going to help pay food for you during that time and we're going to try to find you better stable housing. Um, we don't have a Unsilenced Voices doesn't have they don't own stable housing at this point but they are working to connect them to get out of the brothels to live. I mean and being it was that hands-on and yeah. and I got to touch and do all of those. And then, and then in a in a separate form we got this really great opportunity to be part of of um like a philanthropic TV show called The Fixers and and the crew and the cast that work that show all over the world that film these episodes and go in and do this work were just really, really amazing humans as well. And so that was a, a bonus. It wasn't what I went to the country to to do. It wasn't what I signed up for per se, but it was so wonderful. And they've become a really special part of my memory of that, a really special part of my life as I continue to be friends with them and, and talk to them and follow their journeys 
in their professional lives. And, Isn't that amazing? And so, Look yeah. at all the lives you're impacting. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like that's what it's all about, right? As we go through life, we are so self-focused. Oh God, <laughs> we're so ego-focused. And to see someone who has enough self-awareness to realize it's not about me. Yeah. You know, I just yeah. love that about you. I do. <laughs> I appreciate that. I do. It's it's my prayer every day. Just let me impact somebody else. That's yeah. my goal. Yeah. Melanie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I just so appreciate Dr. Hicks being so open in this conversation. You heard her say she always knew she would be sharing these experiences, but it really does take an extra step to put them together in this like really cohesive, woven way that brings healing together for people. And I think it's important to remind you at this point, if you are unsafe or you're in an unhealthy relationship, if you're a victim of domestic violence, there are organizations whose sole purpose is to help you get out, to stabilize the situation, to give you therapy, to help you disappear if that's what you've got to do. I know I have listeners all over the world, but if you're in Nashville, that organization is the YWCA. If you need help finding a resource closer to you, I know how to find them. Just send me an email, lauren at amstigator.com. We're going to find somebody to help you get out. And also, if you've been sexually assaulted, first, let me be very clear with you. It was never your fault. You don't have to carry shame. You deserve respect. And someone didn't give that to you. No matter how long ago that happened, you can heal and therapy will help you. If you need resources, again, email me. I can help you do that. That's lauren at amstigator.com. I can help you find a place that will help. My hope today is that this conversation brought you some healing. To know that if something like this has ever happened to you, any of it, you're not alone. And more than anything, your life can be incongruent. It can look totally different than what you thought it should. And that's great because it's your life. It's your journey. And it means you made choices that were right for you. So be proud of where that takes you because it has made you who you are. So as you go through life this week, I encourage you, shine your light, lead with your heart, and live life purposefully. I'm Lauren Lowry, and this is Amstigator. <laughs>